I'm Kate Daniels. Tuesday is the day many citizens will go to the polls. Some already have, and some, like we in Washington, mail in or deposit our ballots in a drop location. There's been a lot of focus on the election this year, and it just seems timely to have an informed guest with a broad perspective provide some insights. Dr. Frank Sorrentino has served as chairman of the Department of History, Political Science, and Social Studies at St. Francis College in New York, where he's taught for over 30 years. He's also the author of a number of books. The latest is Presidential Power and the American Political System. Dr. Frank Sorrentino, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. It's great to be with you. Thank you for taking the time to be here during um, a very critical time because we are looking at a very serious week this week. On Tuesday, we go to the polls or perhaps some of us already have voted with mail-in ballots. I have yet to deposit mine in the box. We get to mail them in here in Washington State. But there's so much energy around this this particular election. There's also, I think, a great turnout, but there's also so much negative energy around it. So you had said to me that you enjoy talking about politics and about voting and this whole subject area. So tell us what you feel is happening and how we should approach it and feel positive about it. Well, the American system uh, has its presidential elections every four years, but two years after that, there is what we call the midterm elections, and the public has a chance to recalibrate, turn in, or expand the mandate of the previous election. So uh, all the dynamics of American society and American politics are at play here. And so uh, what we're seeing here is a a typical, although I agree with you, there's a lot of negativity around this, but a typical midterm election generally goes against the incumbent party. And uh, historically, it's anywhere between 25 and 35 uh, seats in the House of Representatives. Uh, The Senate is more problematic because you only have one third of the Senate and it depends on the candidates and the states that are up for election. In addition, uh, we have uh, situations of uh, what issues are at stake, and sometimes issues could affect different states uh, more significantly than others. Uh, But this is going to be a very interesting election, both on the uh, House side, at Senate side, and even the gubernatorial level. So that's good that it's uh, interesting. I think we've seen some of that interest. There, there's been so much publicity, so much rhetoric going on about the challenges around voting and whether there's been illegal activity going on and multiple ballots, I guess, deposited. What do you feel? Are we really dealing with that sort of thing? Well, I I think it's a constant battle. We always uh, set up the rules for election. And uh, the 2020 election, there were a lot of changes made, uh, primarily due to the pandemic. And some of those changes, uh, some people embraced and others thought uh, it had the potential for significant fraud. In the 2022 election, a lot of states uh, pulled back on some of those changes. And in addition to that, 
there was always the question of who was authorized to make those changes. Uh, the Constitution suggests that it's the state legislatures, but in some instances we had election commissioners, governors, and courts make those decisions. Uh, so it's always fraught with when you change the rules, there are always someone benefits. It's sort of like baseball, if I can make the analogy. You pull in the fences, uh, it changes uh, who may win and who may lose. Uh, so when you change the rules around elections, it has uh, significant implications. So we could think that because of the pandemic and needing to make changes, the changes were done with good intent? Well, that's always, uh, you know, it's always a mixture, right? There's good intentions and there is a partisan advantage. Uh, and that that's true for both parties. Uh, it, it is something that people are always debating. Uh, let's say we're talking about, uh, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, the notion of uh, voter ID, uh, the question of... Uh, to what degree do you try to ensure voter integrity? Uh, that's a big, big issue. Uh, the drop-off boxes are another issue. Uh, ballot harvesting is another issue. Uh, the whole question about who uh, are the enrolled uh, eligible voters. Uh, people die, people move, uh, and there's always a level of corruption. Uh, that exist. Uh, you know, the, the history of America is that a lot of uh, big city machines exist, but the machines uh, don't only exist in cities, they exist in suburbs and rural counties as well. Uh, so there's always some elements of nefarious activities that take place. And is that as much human nature because it happens everywhere. It's not just because we're talking about politics and voting. Oh, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Uh, humans are fallible and they are self-interested. And sometimes uh, they try to curry every advantage that they can get. So if you're debating on a voting list, do you debate it in terms of absolute verification or general verification. And uh, depending upon where you think your voters are, you might uh, try to take advantage of uh, one side or the other. So we have had for quite a number of years here in Washington State, the mail-in ballots. And, you know, call me naive, but I look at this ballot, it comes to me in the mail, I put my signature on it once I've voted and I drop it in the box. I don't see a way that I could multiply that. I don't know how I could create another ballot or find another ballot to vote. So is that, looking at it naively, is there a way that I could vote multiple times? Uh, well, I think Washington State has a pretty good record on their mail-ins because they've done it so long. But the key is the voting list and some kind of identification on the ballot. In other states, uh, there isn't a long history of doing this. For example, uh, Wisconsin, their actual constitution, prohibits uh, the mail-in ballot, and it was done very quickly. And so the types of verification and the list, uh, people questioned. And uh, so uh, there is a way of doing this. 
and I think Washington has a, an excellent record on their mail-in ballots, but not every state does. Uh, here in New York, for example, where I reside, uh, a lot of ballots who would you would find it in apartment buildings where the uh, mailman will just leave ballots, uh, you know, in the mailroom and people could pick it up. So uh, the levels of reproduction exist from state to state. And I think uh, the question is, if we're going to do this long term, uh, maybe we should follow some of the uh, uh, practices that existed in, uh, in Washington state. Well, yes, I guess if we found that this has really worked. I Yes, in the recent election, there was a questioning about it. But I think, you know, the history of it has been that people have accepted that it has worked really well. And when you talk about New York and ballots yes, being left in a, in a openly in a mailbox area, it that would be a little disconcerting that uh, that could appeal to someone's, well, I'll call them sticky fingers, that uh, it might go missing. But in that case, would a person be able to call and get a replacement ballot, and would that be flagged? Well, that's the question. Um, there, there was not always an identification on each individual ballot, so that ballot would only be valid for that voter. Uh, they were general ballots, and so uh, fraud was possible. Now, in New York State, it tends to be a, a blue state, so the election is really not critical uh, for most offices. This year, it may be different, particularly in the gubernatorial election. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the issue is uh, a question of the voter list. Is the voter list accurate? And if you're mailing to people who have moved or people who have passed away uh, and there is no identification on the ballot itself, uh, it is open to fraud. Sure. So the, certainly there is reason for concern, for questioning, but have we gone a little too far where do you feel that people might not want to get out and vote, although we are seeing some record numbers already. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, uh, I think there's a lot of rhetoric, but I think the nation is pretty resilient. And uh, in most areas of the country, we're noticing heavy early voting and uh, a large number of people who have registered to vote uh, in many states. So uh, I don't think so. It doesn't appear to be uh, the fact that people are reluctant to vote. What is your feeling as someone who's really studied political science as a career? When you hear about some of the voting locations having people videotaping that there are sheriffs on the premises or nearby, what do you think that that does to people and, and to our whole voting system in general? Well, I think the drop-off boxes are problematic in some instances. Uh, there is the question of continual control over custody. And uh, that becomes a question of then what do you do if people are ballot harvesting or engaged in fraud unless you have some kind of 
video control, but it does have raised the, the specter that people might be intimidated by that as well. Uh, but I think the question of how, for example, Washington State operates in a lot of other states where if you mail it in, uh, there is a better chance of voter integrity than these drop-off boxes. I think the drop-off boxes have raised a lot of questions, uh, particularly since uh, people don't know uh, who is controlling it and what has happened for a long duration. So I, I think that may be something to reevaluate in the future. Uh, so just to be clear about that with the drop-off boxes, it's not so much that they, oh, that is a question, of dropping in the ballot and it's secure here, but how long does it sit there and who's picking it up and when does it actually get turned over to the proper office for for the counting? Yes, those are all important questions, uh, you know, whether even certain uh, ballots could be damaged uh, by uh, different agents who want to destroy a whole host of ballots there. Uh, that's why a lot of people favor, if you're going to have a drop-off box, have it in the local post office. Now, that may not be as convenient, but there's always calibrating uh, the question of integrity versus fraud. And that's always a debatable thing. But I think uh, the post office has continual monitoring and control. And uh, I think if there is a drop-off box that you want to have and it's within the post office, uh, it's probably uh, the, the most uh, coordinated way of doing it where you maximize convenience and you minimize fraud. Right. Because... In, historically, we haven't found that mailing through the post office has been an issue, that ballots have been lost. Or if that happened, it, it really wasn't at all significant? Well, it does happen, but the, the biggest question there are military ballots, which are sometimes done through the Internet. And that becomes an issue, and also the deadline upon which voters uh, can uh, mail in the ballot or do the Internet voting. And that was a big issue in the uh, uh, 2000 election. Uh, but I think the, the real question becomes, uh, like in New York State, for example, you have to request a mail-in ballot. So there is a verification process. Uh, but when they mail it out uh, wholesale, to a list that may not have been verified, then the question becomes, uh, is this open for fraud? And most people are not going to engage in fraud, but there are some groups that might. Uh, and I always use the example, uh, I lock my door at night. So, uh, you know, there's most people are not going to enter, but there may be some, and that could be the difference in an election. I see. So we do need to get out and vote. And, and as we were saying, you know, we're already seeing people turn out uh, for to cast their ballots. And so we should feel that this is our duty. It's our right to do this. And we should feel that, yes, we can do it and do it safely. Well, I think that's the goal. Uh, it should absolutely be the goal. We should encourage people to vote, but we should also encourage people to believe that the outcome is valid. 
And uh, we know historically, you know, we would say, for example, if we're talking about Chicago, uh, his, you know, with the daily machine and previous machines, that the cemetery always votes. And uh, some people vote early and often. So uh, that's also a, a possible area of fraud where if you have a voting list and uh, people don't vote, uh, do you have party hacks or party officials identifying those people who haven't voted and have other people vote in their place, uh, which, of course, is fraud. And it makes it very, very difficult to challenge uh, those uh, those political machines and those political operations wherever they are. And uh, as I said, it, fraud is not the province of one particular party or one particular location, but it has always existed, and we should always try to minimize it. Well, that is very interesting. I am I have little knowledge, sadly, of of that kind of history, but this did exist then, and perhaps still exists, where th- there are certain individuals who are watching for. Uh, a, citizens who don't vote and they might cast a ballot in their name? Yes. Uh, that has been the, in New York, we talk about the history of Tammany Hall. Uh, that has been a, a tradition that existed. Uh, and uh, clearly, uh, it, it's not good. And of course, it leads to the expression, you can't fight City Hall because City Hall already has the votes. And it becomes very difficult to dislodge them and to challenge them. Oh, wow. Dr. Sorrentino, you have given us then a really good reason to turn out and vote. Because if we're turning out, no one can flag our name and say, well, they didn't vote. Ah, here's a here's a candidate that I can always use their <laughs> name, right? Somehow create a oh, ballot yeah. and vote in their Is stead. People who have moved or have deceased and people vote. Uh, uh, in their name, uh, and those lists are very, very critical. Uh, of course, the people always challenge those lists, but uh, if you don't have a good list, and, and people, Americans are always on the move, so the idea of people voting in a location that they uh, have since uh, left or uh, someone else voting in their stead is, uh, is a constant problem. So as a political scientist, who, someone who's really, you know, lived this, have you had a dream as to what would be an ideal voting machine, voting system? Well, I think that the, uh, we should have uh, some kind of uh, paper receipt or paper ballot that we could go to. I think people are very interested in transparency, and uh, members of both parties have questioned some of these electronic uh, voting machines in which we have to accept the results. And those may be the accurate results, uh, but there is sometimes very little, very great difficulty in auditing those results. So I think that's something. Uh, The Europeans, for example, uh, still have paper ballots that they use, and uh, they have uh, voter ID. 
to make sure that the person voting is the individual. And uh, what we're finding is that that's becoming increasingly popular. Uh, at the same time, we want to make sure that people uh, can vote and that uh, IDs are readily available, which I think they are, but in some instances they may not be. Uh, so we want to make sure uh, that people feel that they're welcome to vote uh, if they're a, a legitimate citizen and are entitled to vote in that locale. So it is a, a, a good system, although imperfect, but it's the one we have, and thus we have the responsibility to use what we have. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. You know, you're never going to find a perfect system. Uh, for example, uh, in Alaska, they've developed this rank system. Uh, which is very confusing to people where you don't only vote for the individual, but you vote who you vote for second, third, and fourth, and then they have these runoffs. They tried that in New York as well. And uh, some people feel that the system represents people's intensities. I may have voted for this person, but I really feel pretty comfortable with the second person I voted for. But this, the problem here is that if people don't understand the system and it's too complex, uh, people who are more organized uh, tend to benefit from those systems. So there's always this debate, and I think there's a debate over if you're going to have early voting. Like in New York, I'll use that example, we have early voting for a week, which is pretty good. Uh, but in a state like Pennsylvania, they may have early voting four weeks. And the question becomes, if you're going to have a debate, uh, you can have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who have voted before uh, the electorate has had a chance to see the candidates uh, spar with one another over the issues and personality and uh, a grasp of their passions on those issues. So I, I think uh, we can debate things. Uh, I don't think there's a perfect system, as you said. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, way Washington State has done a pretty good job, as I said, with their mail-in ballots. I think most people would say it has pretty good integrity. New York has done a good job with the early voting one week. Uh, but I think some states are experimenting. And we used to call the states the laboratories of democracy. And uh, we could learn from their experiences and reassess those things uh, in the future. And, of course, that's your work as well uh, in terms of your writing and then sharing it in your teaching with your students at the university. So you have um, a number of books, your more recent one, Presidential Power and the American Political System, uh, is available and probably the most up-to-date uh, of material that we could access and learn a little bit about you, but really learn more about the way our system works, correct? Yes. I think uh, it's my most recent book. It covers my most recent thinking about the presidency and the American political system. Uh, I can also be accessed on my website, uh, which is drfrankmsorrentino.com, Dr. D-R, and uh, has a lot of my appearances on radio and lectures and uh, blogs that I've written. So a great way to learn more about you and and just 
again, there's so much around politics that I know for myself, I feel so overwhelmed and befuddled by, but I, I think that you help us to really get some clarity. You sound very grounded. So to that thank end, you. <laughs> well, thank you, actually. You're, you're the one who is living that life. You are working on a new book, Leadership in the 21st Century, which sounds really intriguing and uh, I would expect is going to give us some good insights and leadership being that it's not just those in power and political power, but doesn't that apply to all of us to a degree? Absolutely. I think uh, leadership in not-for-profit organizations, leadership in corporations, religious groups, uh, I think uh, leadership is at a premium now, uh, or perhaps we would say in short supply. And the, the question then becomes, how could we enhance uh, where people have trust and faith in individuals and feel empowered by those leaders? Uh, I'm a big follower of uh, James McGregor Burns, who believed in transformational leadership. And we look at people, let's say like uh, Lincoln or Martin Luther King, who were able to inspire, but at the same time, uh, incorporate the people that were listening to them and following them into the message and in the governance that they hope to uh, prevail. So that is a, a book for us to be watching for. It may be sometime next year. That is my hope. That is my hope. Uh, it's also dealing with the globalization because I think uh, leadership uh, is somewhat dependent upon the conditions that we live in. And we're living in things that are changing rapidly. And people feel uh, upended in many ways. It's, almost, it's difficult to, for people to adapt to change. And uh, leaders sometimes uh, can help and uh, provide a confidence or they could exacerbate the problem intensely. Yes, we we could even look back at on this time somewhere in the future and think of it as the great upheaval, perhaps. Uh, I agree with that. I think it's a, and the big thing is that I think people, uh, the family structure has changed. Uh, people working for a, a corporation or an institution all their life that is changing. Uh, their children are exposed to all of these uh, sites, which uh, changes their perceptions of their values and of their relationships to other people. So I think uh, those things are inevitable to change, but how we deal with those changes and how we react in a, in a way that preserves some of our key values of uh, liberty and democracy at the same time. Right. Which then also leads me, as I was thinking about uh, our conversation coming up, I uh, had thought about the word civility and wondered then how you, as a political scientist, think about that and have any idea of what to share with us so that we have more of that in, in our lives, in sharing you know, this country with each other. Well, I think it's a critical point, stability. Stability uh, is 
not in itself the only value because you have to have stability and the adaptation to change. But I think historically we understand that most people uh, have difficulty adapting, so we can't uh, institute too much change into their lives. And there's certainly technological change, there's social change, uh, there is the change that all people go through by different stages in their own life. Uh, as Heraclitus used to say, uh, you can't step in the same river twice. So we, we have to uh, adapt to change, but at the same time, if the change is so overwhelming, I think people uh, are more likely uh, to believe extreme and sometimes unfounded uh, positions and uh, hypotheses and uh, ways of solutions of problems. Well, it certainly is uh, such a gift to be able to have a conversation with you, Dr. Sorrentino, to get your perspectives and insights. And I, uh, I really appreciate that. It helps us, I think, to grasp uh, the responsibility that we have in our hands and uh, that is right at our disposal right now. And that would be the directive that you must get out and cast your ballot, get out and vote. I agree with that, and I think you said it beautifully. Well, you have said much beautifully, and again, many thanks for taking time with us today for all your work and all that you contribute to our world. Well, thank you, and I appreciate you having me, Kate, on your show. You're very welcome.